Welcome to SciSection. My name is Timur Bikaliev and I'm the journalist for the SciSection radio show broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Daniel Jones. He received his PhD in personality and social psychology in 2011 and is now an associate professor and researcher at the University of Nevada's School of Business. Dr. Jones researches dark personalities and hemophilia. Thank you for coming on here, Dr. Jones. Thank you for having me. So what is hemophilia? So hemophilia is an individual difference that predicts how fast, easily, and often somebody falls in love. Uh, love is a very difficult thing to define. It's been subject of scrutiny of poets and scholars and philosophers for thousands of years. However you want to define that, high hemophilia individuals describes those who have a hair trigger for falling in love. So they fall in love much faster and quicker than other types of individuals. And why do you think hemophiliacs seek out love or love more than the general population? According to most of the research we've done, we found that they have a high approach motivation to engage in relationships and they have a rush of pleasure that comes along with falling in love. So for an individual who, let's say, goes out one night, meets somebody, there's a clock that starts from the time they meet the person until that relationship develops until they decide, oh, all right, I'm in love. I, I think I'm in love. And for some people in extreme cases, that can range from overnight to 10 years or more. So the reason why individuals who are hemophilics fall in love so quickly and higher at normal rates is they have this rush, this lower threshold. And the way I kind of describe, I actually have a book coming out on hemophilia at Oxford University Press called The Science of Serial Romance. We all know what sexual permissiveness is, or, or sociosexuality as it's referred to in literature, unrestricted sociosexuality, somebody who has sex or willing to have sex very quickly upon meeting somebody. The original authors of that phenomenon describe that there's a bit of a threshold, right? Some people have kind of a lower minimum threshold to meet to say, okay, I'm ready to go to bed with this person versus a much higher threshold. I argue hemophilia is the same thing, except with respect to the acknowledgement or the feeling that you are in love, right? Some people have a very, very low threshold and some people have a very high threshold. But the important point to emphasize is that it is a want and an approach process, which differentiates it from related constructs like uh, anxious attachment, which is a need construct, right? And there's an anxious attached individual say, I need you. I can't live without you. You are my world. And they cling to an individual for self-esteem, for self-worth, things like that. Hemophilia, while it correlates slightly with anxious attachment, is not the same in the sense that hemophilia is a want process. I want you. I'm, I'm excited. I can't get my, you off my mind. And it happens much earlier in a relationship. So how would our listeners know if they're hemophiliacs? And what percentage of the population are hemophiliacs? So hemophilia is at present... Uh, assessed using my EP scale, which you can find at darktriad.co under take a survey. Uh, however, I understand you'll also be providing a link. And if you take that survey, we will give you feedback on your hemophilia score along with uh, ranges and norms of the population for the population and where most people score. Hemophilia in psychometric terms, the psychology of, of assessment, is pretty normally distributed, which means that you will find individuals just like extroversion or agreeableness, you have a, a nice normal curve where 10 to 15% of the population are, are pretty darn high. Um, most of the people are somewhere in the middle and, and a handful are very low. And so, you know, and it's important to understand that if you're high in hemophilia, it's not a, it's not a psychological disorder. It's not... 
uh, just like being super high in extroversion is not a psychological disorder. It can become pathological, can interfere with your life or lead you to make poor decisions in either direction, but it does not in and of itself constitute a pathology. It's an individual difference trait. So Dr. Jones and me spoke about adding a link before we recorded this episode. It should be at the very top of the description for all the major podcast platforms. If you are on radio and the link isn't there, it might be worth checking us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And the next question is, what are the typical highlights or like the best and happy moments and frustrations that Mo Felix might experience? Mm, that's a really good question. So the typical highlights is definitely the repeated rush of falling in love. Individuals high in hemophilia are kind of self-deceptive about how long this relationship is going to last, right? They don't go into the relationship saying, well, I know I'm probably going to be in love with this person for three weeks and it's going to end. So no, they really genuinely most of the time believe that this is the one now. And, you know, their friends will be typically I've heard stories uh, and I've interviewed people who have said like, yeah, we've heard that before from you three times last year, you know, and and that's how an hemophilic individual rolls. Right. And so you have this um, process by which they rush into the love and it's and it's a powerful it's you know, it's a genuinely exciting experience for them. And so they have these high highs when they rush into the love. The frustrations and the struggles do come in because hemophilia doesn't turn off very often once you do find even a great partner. So they'll start to get a wandering eye over time because the attraction towards interlopers and outside members of the relationship will start to become attractive as well. And so that hemophilia, that rush of falling in love, they have to be very guarded about how close they get to people because that hemophilic tendency will take over and then they're very prone. I have a paper right now with um, two of my excellent grad students who are studying uh, infidelity among hemophilics and they have a very high propensity for both sexual and emotional infidelity for that reason. Have you ever had an experience with someone that you suspected that might have hemophilia? What's the story behind this new concept? Yeah, that's a good question. So the story behind the concept was interesting. I was really enamored with research by David Buss and some evolutionary psychologists and on uh, sexual and emotional infidelity. I think a lot of people got interested in that topic. It's both controversial and, 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 and interesting. And so I wanted to look at past history. So I am a huge fan of Kevin Smith. I'm excited that Clerks 3 is coming out and all this. And so Chasing Amy, his movie was really what got me thinking about infidelity and but not so much infidelity as much as past history, sexual history. Spoiler alert for Chasing Amy, some past history struggles that go on in the relationship there. And, and so I wanted to look at these, these sexual versus emotional concepts in the past. So would you avoid a partner that's had sex with, you know, 23 people in the past year? Would you commit to them or uh, versus fell in love with three different people? in the past year, right? Or six different people in the past year. And so I asked this, I conducted a study like that and like I submitted it to Personality Social Psychology Bulletin, it's a great, great journal and they rejected it. But the feedback was, um, you know, that your, your actual study wasn't that interesting, but in the terms I was talking about, you know, okay, so we have sexual permissiveness and emotional permissiveness as a, talking about the targets. And they said, we're really interested in this emotional permissiveness concept. We hope you develop that more. And so I went to my mentor at the time, Del Polis, and said, and I repeated the study. I said, can you help me with the study? He said, no, the reviewers were right. The study was terrible. <laughs> but 
this emotional permissiveness thing is really interesting. I want you to go develop a scale and, and pursue it. And, and the rest is, as they say, history. Um, but the term hemophilia actually wasn't coined by me. It was coined by my friend Dana Weiser at Texas Tech in Family Studies. She, um, We were struggling to publish because the initial term was emotional promiscuity. And understandably, a lot of people struggled with the term promiscuity carrying some negative connotations and baggage. Um, so she helped me develop the term hemophilia. Um, and have I had experience with somebody who is high in hemophilia? Yes, I have me. Um, so, you know, not research is me search. Um, yeah, you know, I've had times in my life when I've displayed hemophilia as well as, uh, you know, in my book, I have at least five to seven really close friends that have displayed hemophilia. And it does help elucidate the construct when you're having these conversations with people and you're like, wow, you know, you do. And very often they'll acknowledge, yeah, no, I know I've said that before, but this is this is the, the real thing now, right? So that's been a really interesting thing. And so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm happily married now and my wife and I laugh about it. Where are you right now with your hemophilia research? So right now, that's that's another great question. So right now, we're working towards uh, finishing our infidelity paper. Uh, should be submitted fairly soon. Um, because I've entered into a management program and a business program, I've pivoted slightly on the concept of hemophilia to develop what we call premature trust. And so we've taken the same basic concepts of, oh, okay, instead of love, like, you know, I think I love you after meeting you for three hours, it's, I think I trust you. So trust is a component of relationships and a component of these things, but we've applied it now to business settings. And we found that individuals who are high in premature trust tend to uh, make poor decisions under certain contexts, right? So if you're asking a manipulative person to give an excuse, they're more likely to buy that excuse, right? As a premature, somebody who's high in premature trust. So we're applying it to that setting. We also have a ton of questions we're interested in just getting it down to the, the mechanisms of hemophilia. So um, because of my appointment in a management school, hemophilia has become a side interest of mine. You know, one of the things that we really need to do that we've neglected is drilling down into the mechanisms, physiology, neuropsychology, and things like that. So anybody out there is listening to this that has access to a neuroscanner and knows how to use it, let's talk. <laughs> So I also saw that a lot of your past research is about three personality traits, including number one, narcissism, number two, Machiavellianism, and number three, psychopathy, which are together referred to as a dark triad. And how does your research in the dark triad traits interact with your research in hemophilia? Are there any interesting findings? Yeah. So my friend and colleague, Jacqueline Lechuga at UT El Paso, and I published a paper showing that individuals high in hemophilia are actually drawn to these characters in relationships. And, you know, it's a very difficult thing because you, you know, these, these folks are prone to abusive behavior. They're prone to manipulation, lying, infidelity, uh, exploitation. So you don't want to blame the victim or say that it's anybody's fault for getting in these relationships. And we're not. But what we are saying is that individuals high in hemophilia who feel this rush, because they rush in, they tend to ignore red flags. And so they tend to sidestep the warnings that would come with somebody who's a bit manipulative and a bit overconfident or arrogant or aggressive, right? And so they see the rush and they ignore the red flags along the path. And so they do find themselves ending up in relationship with these types of characters. And so that's one one chapter in the book that I wrote was uh, the allure of, um, you know, bad boys and bad girls for hemophilic individuals. And what's interesting uh, along those lines is that narcissism in particular 
is through work of Del Paulus and Nietzsche Bach and other types of individuals, we know, and my friend Aaron Buckles, uh, we know that individuals high in narcissism are just so charming in first encounters. They are, they rule the roost when it comes to activities like speed dating or initial encounters. They're incredibly charming and it's virtually impossible to disentangle overconfidence from confidence when you meet somebody and especially in the first couple of encounters. So narcissistic individuals in particular can reel in somebody high in hemophilia with that charm. And while some of us who are hot, lower and moderate in hemophilia won't fall in love right away, and then maybe the, the snow will melt enough for us to see, oh, I, I'm not sure I want to be in a relationship with this person where the hemophilic has already convinced themselves, has already decided they're in love and they're the, the wheels are turning. And so when you're in love, obviously you put some blinders on and you don't notice other things. So we believe that's the process of why they're drawn to dark personalities. Is there anything that an hemophilic can do to prevent themselves from falling into these toxic relationships? Absolutely. Listen to your friends, listen to your loved ones, the people who care about you when they have concerns. They're not jealous necessarily de facto. They are concerned for you. But one of the things that I encourage people to do is keep a journal or diary and track over time, you know, force yourself to take 30 days, 60 days before committing to any relationship of any kind. And, you know, give yourself longer periods of time that you just force your hand in the matter before, you know, any kind of major life decision like moving in or having a child or anything like that. Del Paulus demonstrated in 1998 that narcissistic charm wears off after about three months, right? So if you can force your attention towards those red flags and acknowledge them rather than dismiss them, listen to your loved ones and follow your journal, your guide, your diary, you can push towards this red flag. And the other thing is, you know, boring people, initially boring people on dates, that's maybe I'm guilty of that, um, get a bad rap, but People, as you get close to them, get more interesting over time very often. And so if somebody doesn't have that super exciting, let's go bungee jumping on our first date type of thing, and you got another person that's got red flags, but is super exciting, I'd say, get, you know, be patient with the boring person and worry about the red flag person. And if you're going to choose between the two, avoid the red flags altogether and give a boring person a second chance. And, you know, I, <laughs> my former self would have been grateful for that. The other thing I'd say with avoiding toxic people is, you know, believe your eyes. You know, I think there's a great quote out there that says, when somebody shows you their true self, believe them the first time. So a large part of our listeners are university students. What advice do you have for students to love in a healthy way? I would say be patient with yourself. Make sure that you take your time in making major life decisions. You feel how you feel and that's okay. Okay, you know, but take your time in making major life decisions, because there may be some people listening right now that are at the cusp of moving in or having a baby or getting married or engaged. And there are red flags. Maybe you have stepped over because the excitement you, you, you find a way. Humans are remarkable creatures cognitively and our ability to sidestep, reorganize and cognitively rearrange facts in our brain to suit what we really want out of life and how we really want to see it gets gets uh, the motivated minds can distort facts for very easily i'd say if you're thinking about making a major life decision and some of the things i've said today have resonated with you I'd talk to a counselor talk to a therapist talk to a trusted friend um, i mean i personally i see a therapist i think most people 
if not all people, should be seeing a therapist at least once a year, twice a year for mental health checkups. Um, talk to somebody you trust and get an objective, an objective view. And I, I'm not um, negating the feelings. You feel how you feel. Anima Felix will always feel these rushes faster than non-anima Felix. There's nothing that ever is going to change. It's the decisions and the behaviors and the choices you make that are going to make or break the major things in your life. Like with my wife, you know, I mean, as an hemophilic, I am prone to having feelings for individuals. So I have to draw that line much faster than I think somebody who's low in hemophilia. So I get to know somebody, um, you know, and I, 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 I'm constantly aware and uh, mindful of my cognitive processes and, you know, actions and behaviors that could lead to a slippery slope. And I'm, I'm very actively cognitively and, and cognizant of, of those potential slippery slopes. Do understand that, you know, you feel what you feel and that's great, but do understand that nothing can destroy a life faster than major life decisions with the wrong partner. So is there anywhere that students can look to find out more about you and your research? You mentioned that you have a book coming out. Absolutely. So we have a book coming out, The Science of Serial Romance uh, by Oxford University Press. It's probably going to take, we're in the final revision stages now, so it might be another six months to a year, but uh, individuals can always feel free to email me. Uh, My email is available at my website at darktriad.co and the link will also take you to my website. You can find me at University of Nevada Reno's management uh, page. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to field any questions or emails that individuals have about this. Um, So yeah, please, uh, any questions, I'm happy to help. Thank you. And for the final question, if you wanted someone to take away three key points from this episode, what would they be? Well, the first one and the most important one is you feel what you feel, but it's your decisions that are going to ultimately impact your life. The second one would be that this is an individual difference trait. This is not something that is a pathology. Being low and being high yield trade-offs in and of themselves, right? So somebody who's too low in hemophilia may fall in love once or never. And if that love doesn't work out, then they may be alone and you know, being alone is better than being with the wrong person, but that could be a very lonely place if they had been able to have a little lower of a threshold for these emotions. And being too high, obviously, is can be a trade-off as well. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is hemophilia is, is a very exciting line of research that is unique from other relationship constructs. And I'd really like to see more research out there on hemophilia because uh, it's a really uncharted waters and it's a lot of exciting research that's yet to be done on the topic. Thanks for taking the time to meet with me, Dr. Jones. That's it for this week of Section. I hope you learned something interesting about hemophilia. Make sure to check our podcast available on global platforms for our latest interviews.